Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's infectious disease insight of a tetrad of specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, this is Rob, and over there's Ollie, and we're about to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm... I'm great. How are you... Rob, I am good. Thank you. How are you, Ollie? I'm okay. Thanks. Thanks, Callum. I'm good. I'm good. Great. Welcome to the podcast. Our first guests, Rob and Ollie. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Thank you. Nice honour. Guys, do you want to introduce yourselves? I think everybody knows who Jamie and Callum is by now. Who's listening to the podcast? Uh, Ollie, who are you? Uh, so I'm a uh, infectious diseases and microbiology reg. I have the pleasure of working with Jamie at Nadosh South. And uh, I, I recently did part two, which is why I'm here. And Robert? I'm Robert Ball. I'm an ID micro registrar in Liverpool. I, yeah, fairly recently did a FRC path part two in spring of this year. Oh, spring. So you didn't do it just now? No. Oh, that's interesting. So we've got two different part twos to, uh, to pull from, because Ollie, you just uh, sat it and passed it with what I understand were flying colours. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say. I've actually just come back from the golf course celebrating. <laughs> um, when you pass the part two, uh, what do you get? Do you just get a pass fail or do you get a mark or do you, do you get any feedback at all? Or is that one of the questions, Callum, in your list that we're going to go through? Okay. It's not, but it's a good question. I've also thought of another question that we should probably start with, but I'll hear the answer to that question and then I'll post <laughs> that question. Uh, Ollie? Yeah, so you, so you just get pass fail. As, as always in medicine, you were either a failure or adequate. Well, my first question, actually, I, I, we've prepped some questions and I did prep it. So the first question was, what is the part two? What are we talking about for the uninitiated? Perhaps, I think UK-based infection trainees it, will know what we're talking about. But for our growing North American audience and international audience, um, what, what on earth are we talking about? So to do infectious diseases and microbiology training in the UK, particularly microbiology training, you have to complete the FRC path exam. So there's part one and part two. So I think part one's been talked about maybe on this podcast before. But part two is um, a slightly more clinical microbiology focused exam. It's gone through quite a few changes in the last few years. So it used to be a quite a long three-day laboratory-based, more OSPI-focused exam with mm. quite a lot of wet work, which I don't think lots of people enjoyed. But it's been sort of trimmed down, I would say, much to the disappointment of some of my more senior consultants into two, three-hour papers focusing upon main important topics in clinical microbiology and sort of modern infection practice of interpretation, bacterial resistance, antimicrobial stewardship, infection prevention, um, and yeah. clinical management of uh, infections. So there's one paper that's more an OSPI style. So we get uh, nine-minute stations you're sat down at your desk really so this is the way it was done for us you're sat down at your desk and you have the questions separately and every nine minutes someone tells you to move on to the next question including some rest stations and within that you have a couple of face-to-face stations slightly more um, scenario-based questions and then the second paper is more sort of vignette and sort of a mixture of short and long answer questions based upon clinical situations um, so they're not best of fives they're sort of right there's no, it's, there's no, most, no multiple choice at all it's all short mainly short answers or sort of short paragraphs mm. yeah. okay 
it's it's quite a different exam, especially to the CICE or FRC Path Part One exam. Yeah, and there are, I suppose, good and bad points, or or at least easier and more difficult points of changing it from the longer exam. So, like our consultant, some of our consultant colleagues will have had to revise and make massive tombs of uh, of revision notes, and then have this exam over a period of a few days and arguably you're more likely to get that kind of breadth of questions so all you can anticipate what things are going to come up to some degree the shorter one day of just intense exam could be that you just haven't revised certain things you get quite a lot of questions on and things you revise a lot of might not come up as much um, and certainly the this the OSPI style questions are really quite different to anything I've done in a, I'd done an exam before, like a really time pressured nine minute question. Kind of reminds me of the old um, the old paces mm. format before they restructured it uh, as well. So to to clarify for listeners from uh, outside the UK, most of infection trainees at the mo- recently will be trained initially as physicians, and so they'll all have their MRCP. So that's from the Royal College of Physicians, their membership exams, and they complete internal medicine training or core medical training. And then at that point, they'll apply to do infection medicine. And it can be either infectious disease micro or infectious disease with gen med or micro on its uh, own is, uh, I don't think, available anymore. Virology with uh, micro. There's a bunch of different combinations. But if one of them involves microbiology, you have to do this exam, the part two. If you're just doing infection, so as an example, I only did training in infectious disease and clinical pharmacology, you only have to do the part one, and there you stop. That's considered to be a rested exam. The part two is for microbiologists and also virologists and anybody who's interested in doing it, and is considered to be an escalation in difficulty, uh, let's say. Because the part one has been... Because I'm the only one who's not going to do it. Well, you haven't even done it, you lazy sod. So why don't you just... Uh... Yeah, we're all shaking our heads at you, James, because... Uh... <laughs> you shake your head once you've passed, all right? Well, you could... I've, I've offered before, and you could sit it with me. You know, you said anybody who wants to... You know, really, it could add a lot of clout to this podcast if we both were FRC PATH fellows of the Royal College of Pathologists. Well, you maybe these guys will try and persuade me uh, by the end of the podcast that it's worth doing. I, 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 was, I was just going to say it's open to clinical scientists as well to this exam. So, so people on the HSST program, the Higher Specialty Scientist Training Program, Microbiology, also do. That's, that's right. Program. So in the UK, I think this is quite unique to the UK. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but um, it's possible to become a microbiologist but not be a doctor. So you can be a biomedical scientist, and as long as you've got that degree um, uh, and you've got a bit of training, you can apply for HSST. And then you sit in the same exams, you train alongside clinician, uh, microbiologists and infection doctors. And then at the end of it, you get to uh, be a microbiologist or a virologist or what have you. Yeah, you don't, you don't necessarily have to come through biomedical scientists, like specific BMS training. I think you can have done any sort of science. Uh, Ollie, what do you wish you'd studied more for the exam? So... Um, I wish I hadn't studied more at all, but um, and I never want to study it again particularly. But um, for me, stats does come up, and um, uh, stats are certainly a weakness of mine. Generally, 
I thought you could get away with just sort of knowing your sort of two by two box stuff, but you do need to know a little bit more than that. Certainly it's worth knowing sort of some of the slightly more other things beyond sensitivity and specificity as you may be expected to calculate those okay. uh, or at least understand them. Um, so there were certainly some questions around statistics, interpreting test results, um, and certainly beyond sort of just your sensitivity, specificity, and positive predictive value and stuff. So slightly beyond sort of those. Um, uh, so worthwhile knowing that. And I think having a calculator with you is probably also just as a tip. Even if they don't say to bring really? one, you might need one to calculate it. Rob's a polymath, so it's not a problem for him. <laughs> Or otherwise, I got that question terribly wrong, and uh, obviously it was very basic uh, maths that I needed to do. But um, well, you can't just do mental p-values. Uh, no, no. <laughs> uh, so that's was something that we should have. Maybe maybe we can jump to Rob for something that you went, we should studied more of, and then we alternate back. Uh, yeah. I mean, is it worth saying what what is in the exam? Yeah, go ahead. Yes, that's a great idea. Kind of in the hierarchy of things to, to learn for the exam is, uh, are the UK SMIs, so the, um, what's the standard microbiological investigations, which basically just the guide for how the labs should process most samples. Um, and they go right down into the nitty gritty of exactly how, like how long to culture something for and, and in what um, conditions. Basically that's number one on the list and you need to know them in a lot of detail and memorize quite a lot of them. It's, and they've usefully they've got quite a lot of um, flow diagrams um, and they're generally easier to test. Although then there are the uh, HTMs and HBNs. So uh, healthcare technical, what's M? Memorandum. Memorandum. So you've got a number of them, which we like, seems like anyone who's done the FRC path can like quote the numbers of HDMs, so like one one for ventilation, etc. It's really specific stuff. Not all of it is geared towards us. Probably most of it isn't. But you need to learn the, for example, the number of air changes per minute in certain circumstances. Um, then UK-based guideline, guidelines, like Nice guidelines, UK HSA or BHE formerly. Uh, and then other things like the Green Book, Kosh, um, like lab, your local lab decontamination SOP, and then guidelines moving further out. So um, organizations within the UK like like BSAC, BIA, HIS, BASH, um, and then out further than that, U European, like the UCAS guidelines. They've got very, actually really good explanations of the intrinsic resistance document, for example, is yeah, yeah, really, really helpful, um, very clear and good exam fodder, I would imagine. I think beyond that, like international guidelines that we use in the UK, like IDSA, it, it's, I suppose it's possible, but probably not not likely to come up in the exams. What was the thing after HTM? You said SMI, HTM, and something else. HBN. I think I did. Uh, it's more engineering stuff. I, I can't remember I, what it stands healthcare for. Healthcare building notices or something. I don't know. It's to do with buildings. Oh, I didn't, I've not even heard of that before. Um, this is terrifying. I, the more you say, the more you learn. So this is where you're like looking at room layouts for like ventilation yeah. and like this kind of stuff. 
Um, so yeah, I think I've heard about these. Yeah, but the building standards for you know they they specify things like how big a negative pressure room should be, how many air changes there right. should be, what the pressure okay. differential is between the negative pressure and the outside, how big the antechambers have to be, the number of ventilators that have to be um, present in the operating theater, the number of air changes that there have to be, that kind of thing. I'll um, um I'll I'll link not to every single SMI because that would be a crazy long long show note, but uh, just yeah. to where where to find these resources. Um, well, there is one page with all of them listed. Yeah. Um, on the HSA website, so we reading that page that. alone takes a while, let alone reading each of the SMIs. Ah, true enough. But I mean, at least it's all in one place. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the good thing about the SMIs is that every lab works to that standard. Like it doesn't. Um, change you know from place to place particularly the implementation changes but they're not going to test you on that they're going to test you on the smi stuff yeah someone's someone told me that um uh they want people to pass this exam who could then work as microbiologists in a dgh so mm. enable to able to interpret microbiology stuff as well as virology stuff yeah um yeah. they're not going to test you on very niche stuff like interpretation of brucella serology Probably. <laughs> but all we know. <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say, the SMIs are, have some really high yield information, but they're kind of buried within lots and lots of chats as well. And the same with the HTMs. The HTMs are like 200-page documents, which are formatted basically in endless bullet point paragraphs, which are terrible to try and digest and read and understand. So if you have people around you who have previously summarized notes or kind of looked at them previously, just make sure that they're kind of have looked at the latest versions. But if you have access to other people's sort of, you know, study resources who have tried to do all this before, mm. I definitely make use of them rather than trying to do it yourself. So they, because mm. um, they are not particularly accessible documents. The SMIs are slightly better than the HTMs. The HTMs are awful to try and read. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. On your, your question, Callum, I, I, I've skipped your, your question and gone to the other one. Yeah, you answered the question that we needed answered rather than the answer that I asked. I'm like Batman of podcasts. Um, yeah. What do I wish I studied more? I wish I had spent less time reading like the HTM, HTMs um, and just like picked out the key information and memorized it. Because I don't think I really had it in my mind that clearly when it came to the exam. Mm. And uh, I would have looked, spent more time looking at the biochemical tests. The, the SMIs, like this, doesn't cover all of them, but it has like specific SMIs on like, this might not be one that they have, an oxidase test. But I would have had a few examples of ones that are key positives and key negatives for each of them. Um, and probably have spent more time looking at virology, look through the hit, any notes from his, because... I think they're, they're, they have really good training days. Do they? Excellent training committee. Excellent training committee. <laughs> and uh, syphilis. Look, look through syphilis more. Syphilis. Um, and looked at, look, looked at grams as well. Like they, 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 they may well put up, like the first, first thing might be a gram of something. Mm. It's ridiculous, but I don't actually look at that very often in microbiology. Um, just get given the, the result. Yeah, it's funny. The um, in Nadosh South, the microbiology department makes it a point of the lab registrar going and checking, sort of all the grams in a way that um, it was suggested that we do, 
in Nadosh North when we were doing microbiology, but in reality, it was actually quite difficult to do because they didn't really expect you to come through and interrupt their workflow, demanding to borrow their microscope for 10 minutes multiple times a day. Um, so I didn't really do it. Um, mm. Whereas in the in Nado South, it's sort of expected um, for you to go and do it. So you're almost forced to learn a little bit of identification of morphology and realize when something, you know, is over decolorized or um, or not. Yeah, it raises a question, I guess, because in the exam, well, you're not te- you're not testing the ability to read a gram. You're testing the ability to look at a photo of a gram and do that. So what we've been doing is we've got one of these Yenwei cameras and um taking photos of interesting grams and then saving it a shared drive and then yeah, linking yeah. it to the lab number so you can go in and say this is the gram and then you can figure out what you think it is and then check but that's that's a great tick i don't think i would have thought to to practice that so the, the keister we we moved to new lab and it's got a massive keister machine that uh, takes photos of everything and it's just it's just great yeah it's the next way for benches that use them uh, in fact all of our sites have a keister don't they uh, so that was the that was a huge list of resources to, to study, which is a bit overwhelming. Well, is there anything else, Ollie, that you would want to include as well as all that? I so yeah, if we're talking about what resources are helpful, um, so definitely SMIs eight two and everything that Robert said. Learn infection, the BIA mm. website has it's probably more slightly more focused towards part one, but but there's definitely yeah. some useful part two stuff in there. Well, it's what I use for the part one. So, like, did you find it useful for the part two, or was it? Although, it was... whether that's just because I've always used question banks really heavily for exams previously, and it's like the only one available mm-hmm. uh, for kind mm-hmm. of UK mm-hmm. infection. And uh, and so, whether I just when I was stuck for what to do, I just would do some questions learn infection, and I definitely basically had knew all the answers, had done all the questions like so many times because there's not there's not a huge number. Um, but I think no, it's, it's about three hundred or so. I, th- I think. Or... I think the 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 sort of um, explanations of the answers on there are really good, and some useful mm. yeah. resources there definitely. Um, and then um, the his his website. There's a lot of free training material, and being his member is free, um, and certainly from IPC stuff. Some of the Peter Hoffman, Karen Staniforth lectures, and kind of IPC in five minutes type brief overviews is pretty high yield revision. I think. Um, and then some of the other podcasts. So obviously, this excellent esteemed podcast is a very helpful resource, and I definitely listen to it a lot. Uh, and have your five to... pound note is in the mail, Ollie. <laughs> uh, and then uh, IPC... any other podcast that you I... like? So IPC Matters, uh, which is run by Brett Mitchell, and the I... Infection Prevention Conversation that is run as well is quite quite an interesting kind of one for sort of broader overviews of IPC topics. Mm. And the other, the other thing I was going to say from my ecology point of view is that the University of Adelaide has a good uh, mould identification sort of self-assessment website, which is free to use. And I will send Ken on the link so you can stick it on the podcast if you wish to. Yeah, uh, that, that really is good. There's a bunch of good mycology resources, but Adelaide is probably the highest, high, the, mm, the most sophisticated, uh, I should say. Um, I have to say a bunch of the uh, I don't, don't know if you identified all those molds, Ollie, but I um, uh, got five questions in and I hadn't heard of a single one of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's certainly like well beyond, I think, probably in the reality of what you need to know. But it's quite I think it's quite, quite helpful to make you to maybe broaden your horizon slightly. Yeah. You're changing yeah. the names. Was yeah, there much well, mycology I mean, in the exam or was it mainly bacteriology and virology? Or, um, was also, was there much microbacteriology? 
mycobacterial content? So, I mean, I would say it was certainly bacteria were the most common theme, understandably. Uh, there was some viral interpretation uh, and treatment sort of questions. There was some fungal questions and some mycobacterial questions as well. So mm. it certainly everything was in it. So I guess, you know, interpreting uh, CT values and graphs and melt curves and that kind of stuff. Okay. And then yeah. deciding on treatment or doing further testing or serology, depending upon the, you know, whether you've got an immune suppressed patient, maybe, or other things. So um, sort of the multi, sort of, I think I was in the, in the second paper particularly where you get sort of multi-stem questions after an initial kind of vignette and that sort of stuff is all in the green book the green the green book is amazing like i studied that a lot for part one probably too much actually on reflection although i think yeah. i would say the same thing that rob said about like i find that like these big things like smis in the green book it's very easy to read it and be like i have read that tick and then they ask a question like i know i've read the chapter in diphtheria but i can't remember anything about it you're going to immediately disagree with me, Callum, but uh, I I continue to use uh, flashcards when I was revising for this exam. <laughs> just because... Um, you love a flashcard. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, this, it's basically... I find it impossible to memorize stuff that's uh, just a chunk of text unless you pick out the, the facts and uh, test yourself on it. Are there any resources... Because we've talked about like the, the general provision of materials there and I, I know I, I think most of us certainly all you mentioned there that question banks you know for like like membership of the Royal College of Physicians part one and part two like that I think that's how I pass I just use past medicine and on the similar um question banks and there's also for the first part one infection exam there's the orange book question bank and there's there's mm. learn infection there's a lot of stuff that's like here's the stuff you need to know for this exam just go study this it sounds like you're not telling us about a part two book that I, I'm secretly hoping is being published since the last time I looked. Yeah, it's called Kahneman's and you just need to start at Aardvarkacillin and end at ZZ Topomycin. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't use any, I didn't think I used any textbooks really um, for my no. uh, um, or any question. I mean, we had consultants um, in Nados North advising us to start reading Mandel's and don't stop until we'd finished. And I find that extremely off-putting. And, you know, Kahneman's isn't much smaller as a book. And I think that that trying to memorize a, what's obviously a reference textbook probably wouldn't be advantageous because I don't think you could do it. Yeah, Calm, what, what I would say is, yeah, there, there isn't uh, an ex, like a definitive list of stuff to memorize and there isn't, past, there isn't um, a question bank to use, but... It does look weird, but if you memorize the SMIs and the HTMs and then the UK-based guidelines, that would that should get you through the exam. Um, it just seem, it is just a massive amount of stuff yeah, to learn. Yeah. But is there anything else aside from that that rolled up in your exam, either of you guys, that just hit you for six and you were like, I've got no idea where that came from and I would have never studied that in a million years? Was there a question like that? Not me. I, th I think... if. If you learn those things, there was just some things that I just didn't have time to look up. And then when they came up, I was like, oh, that's annoying. Yes. Like, yeah. as an example, I, I'd been looking through the Oxford Handbook of Infectious Disease and Microbiology, like on the train down to the exam. And I was trying to memorize the mechanisms of actions of antibacterials and antifungals. And a question came up on an antifungal that I hadn't memorized. It's like the, the next thing I thought, well, I, 
I can't be bothered to learn that. I'm just probably going to stick in my mind when that came up. Mm. It's just a lot of detail, but there's always going to be questions. Isn't that a thing? They always write questions that they don't ex- mm. they expect only the only the Ollie, Ollie Bannisters to get of the world. <laughs> um, well, I mean, the, yeah, normally, I think in, in certainly in best of five exam formats, which this wasn't, but uh, as a general rule, 10% will be too easy and will be answered by everyone and they will discount them. And also about 10% will be bad discriminators and nobody will get them right or hardly anyone will get them right and they will also be locked off. So as a rough estimate, you're only actually ever going to be assessed on 80% of of the exam and they, they kind of factor that in. And I presume the same is true of this as well. If there is a station or an exam or a question that was a bad discriminator, there's a whole science around assessment setting and and how you do that. And you know, but I guess the, the the key thing to take away is that like if you come out of an exam and you think, oh, there was some really hard questions and I didn't get them, therefore I failed. You know, any exam you sit, there will always be questions that are too difficult unless the exam yeah, is yeah, set yeah. properly. So, I. I... I was just going to say, actually, the one really helpful resource that we haven't mentioned are the example questions on the on the um, FRC Path website or the RC Path website. Um, so there are there aren't very many, um, but they they do give a good example of the formats and also the expected length, kind of conciseness of answer you're expected to write. So you're not you they they make it clear in the exam that if you write correct information that is at the bottom of your long paragraph, you will probably not get marked marks for it if it's too far down. So you need to write your information kind of succinctly and clearly. So kind of it's bullet point sort of answers. Um, and you sort of, you can be guided by the number of marks on a question as to kind of the points that you need to make. Really. Go ahead. Uh, can I add even an even uh, bigger list of uh, resources? So, I think yeah his is great for the uh, infection prevention control stuff but it's also that blue ipc book nizam dimani book i i looked at bits of it but it's uh i think that is like one of the one of the reference ipc books often my consultants oh, i don't I didn't know what that is that's additional stuff like giving you numbers on like um yeah uh the you know that are the bmss are always using the ones you do mycology blue identification of fungi book by colin campbell yes um i flick through that it's got loads and loads of pictures quite well spaced out uh fonts um and uh, that's that's pretty good to give you like an idea and how to understand how to uh, differentiate uh aspergillus species or identify black moles etc um maybe I, I didn't know about that uh, mycology thing in adelaide maybe using that along with that would be, would work, work work quite well um, I say anything that helps contextualize this really kind of difficult to grasp information, like uh, I find the febrile podcast very helpful for that. And Lester run a mock exam, uh, which I went to. D- did you go to it? No, I didn't. No. So uh, I don't I don't know how often they do it, but they did it before my exam and it was extremely helpful, um, mainly just to understand the format of this exam, because even though I did it, um, when it came to the actual exam, it still kind of caught me out because the structure is so unusual. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I ran out of time for my for my last question on the, I thought it was doing really well. And this, the second, for me, was the second paper, which involved the kind of longer answer questions. And uh, um, 
yeah, you just need to get your timing right. You could lose loads of marks, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. Really interesting that like the format is something that you're both talking about as being unusual and and, and adding challenge because like you think about like learning like when we talk about an assessment, I guess we want to know surely like if it's difficult for people, it's because they don't know the information I'm testing stuff rather than it's, you know, this extraneous cognitive load, um, like that's just not relevant to what you're learning by the, the way it's set up. And so like your cognitive load is, it's been increased by the weird way that they run an exam or running out of time, which is like, maybe that's deliberate. I don't, I don't, don't really know, you know, the, the way that the exam is set. And as I said, there's a lot of, science that goes on behind that so maybe there's a reason why it's like that but um maybe just because it's been an iterative process that they've reached the exam format as it is and some things are better than it was but it is a new format change so like robert the one that you said wasn't that the first one in the new format it was the second one but yeah it's still quite new so it, it it is very recent but the the thing that it replaced i think was probably you know that like calm your deep in educational theory um no doubt but there is a um you know when it comes to examinations the it's it's a bit of an artificial scenario and people get nervous about exams so anything that you can do to try and standardize it and sort of try and eliminate that that kind of nervousness as a contributing factor to whether the person passes or fails you know is a good thing that's why people have been moving towards best of fives, you know, for, for medical school exams. And there's going to be a standardized, you know, leaving medical school exam, a bit like the USMLE for the UK. Well, part of that is because they want every medical school to be pushing out people of the same standard. But another part of it is that they, you know, just realize that that's currently the best way that we've got to, to test people. And it's what all the post-grad exams are structured like these days. So you'll be doing you know, best of five exams for the rest of your life, unless you do microbiology, in which case this crazy part two comes, but at least it's not as crazy as it was. Um, yeah, to, yeah. To, to try and very briefly condense, like there's so much stuff about like assessment and standards and how you do that. And, you know, ideally you want like what your curriculum, like what you want people to learn about. So for us, the infection curriculum to align with, what you actually do, like how you learn it, but to align with what you assess people on. And it sounds like the new exam, what you're saying is, or what I'm hearing anyway, is that they're asking and expecting you to know stuff that sounds like it's actually quite useful for the job. Would that be fair to say? And so it's a lot better than the old exam, which was, we're going to assess you on this lab stuff because we think that we want you as a microbiologist to know that, but actually in practice, you don't go in the lab, you don't do that stuff. Like you need to have oversight of it, but there's no need to have the practical knowledge that was being accessed before. Mm. Uh, so perhaps that's, yeah. that's an improvement. And I think on the fight on the, the, the multiple choice questions, ultimately it's just really hard to mark an essay and it's really hard to mark things where there's a bit of subjective stuff. And that is really, really easy to mark. And that's a big part of it. You can have yeah. a really clear standard, very easy questions to, to set well, not easy, I guess. It's still difficult, but easier to, to set them and easier to mark them and to have a standard and like be very clear about how you're doing it and making it fair uh, in air quotes. Guys, I have one more thing. I can't get syphilis serology in my head. 
I just can't understand it. So have you guys done a podcast on syphilis yet? Uh, no, but it, it, trust me, it's in the it's in the pipeline. So we're going through all the bugs, and I'm sort of leaving the spirochetes to last. Uh, but treponema pallidum is uh, is on my radar. Believe me. Wait, do you Why mean do you treponema ask? pallidum, or is it treponema pallidum subspecies pallidum? It doesn't really matter because you can't differentiate with serology. Well, ah, uh... you see there. <laughs> that's my answer. Thank you, Owen. The first five pound note in the mail. Um, yeah, but I mean, like syphilis serology is notoriously difficult, and of course they keep on changing the test names as well. Although that does seem to have settled down a little bit now. Do you have a resource to point people towards, Rob? Yeah, I was asking. Can you, if you can do it, if you can solve solve that issue, let's do it. Well, Rob, Rob is obviously a shiny example that you actually don't need to understand syphilis serology's past part. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how it works in your centre because, you know, I think often it's something that's a bit specialist. So even within the, the infection department, you have someone who's who specifically does that and not everybody does it. And so it is quite a, maybe a niche skill, although you probably need to have a good understanding of it. And I'm sure you understand it. But I mean, I think it's um, that that's true of like most stuff. Once you get to, you know, virology above, you know, the very basic um viruses that everyone knows there's usually a department's got one person who's like the go-to person to deal with it and and so too with you know syphilis and the more weird and wonderfuls yeah that's true yeah so the fact that there's no part two you know they're crying out for but i guess the reason why potentially there is no like clear like here's a study book here's all the infographics here's like a nice way of preparing for this is because there's such a small market for that like nobody would write a book because what who's you going to sell that to also, the stuff changes. It's too much to cover. But, but I mean, maybe now there's infection doctors that are, you know, micro and ID, and there's BMSs that are, or HSSTs, and, you know, like maybe the market is now bigger because the exams have been kind of unified into the, yeah. uh, under the auspices of the FRC path. Well, if someone's out there writing a book, let us know. And Well, they already have done this. The Orange book, the Orange MCQ book. Even for part two. We'll include a link to it in the prescription, but I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, Luke Moore and Jim Hatcher. Let's go on to another question. So uh, what areas of practice would have been useful to have more experience prior to the exam, e.g. public health, IPC, and any specific specialties? Now, a little bird has told me, Ollie, uh, that you're not currently doing grown-up microbiology, are you? No, I'm not. I'm currently in the land of group A strep. Ah, yeah, so you're doing- Doing some PEDS ID, um, which is which is great uh, timing straight after my exam that had a fair amount of pediatrics in it. So yeah, um, yeah. I would certainly say that that having some exposure to PEDS mm. is really helpful. So certainly in Nador South, we don't always have that because we have a PEDS ID team. So we, in hours, we certainly managed to shrug our shoulders and bounce a lot of work over to them. But if you're if you're working in other places where you're doing pediatric mycology, then it better be well placed, I think. And I think it's just about having a bit of familiarity with antibiotic choices and dosing and kind of indications where you might not, you know, uh, where it's a little bit different sometimes with adults. Um, mm. uh, so def- I definitely think it would have been beneficial. Any other areas of practice? So also I think um, IPC. So I, I mean, I've got a bit of an interest in IPC anyway, and I've had a little bit of time specifically with our team uh, where I am, but there was a fair amount of IPC topics, sort of outbreak investigation, management, theatre ventilation, water, food safety as well uh, can come up. 
so it's worthwhile i think having that exposure and understanding sort of some of the basic uh, approaches yeah i mean a lot of this is covered in the foundation certificate course in infection it's... prevention control that the healthcare infection society runs for trainees and is you know a brilliant resource highly recommended and really i kind of think it should be if i had my way it would be mandatory for every uh, for every infection trainee to go and do it i'm sure can and i would agree with you yes but one of those um days is on like engineering and water management um if i remember rightly did any of that come up you know uh, it definitely could come up a kind yeah. of a sampling of water interpretation of results and mm. i think you have to be comfortable with ventilation water decontamination interpreting you know your uh, water samples and your post flush samples and all this sort of stuff um, and have a have a feeling for what you would do if you get an, you know an abnormal result which is interesting because it's... i feel like when i've gone on infection control placements the stuff that's coming up is not often that stuff and that's more like opportunistic like if you just happen to have that sort of problem which unfortunately or fortunately from a training perspective it's not infrequent so you probably will be exposed to those sort of areas of practice what i would say is invaluable is having tutorials from consultants and or other trainees people who've done the exam especially on as you say james the kind of the htm related stuff which is very difficult to remember uh, certainly i found tutorials from the one of our IPC consultants so helpful usually it was just to uh, demonstrate to me that even though I've read the HTM that I don't know any of it um, and focus on what to go back and learn if your hospital has like ventilation group or water safety group personally I didn't attend them but you might find that a, a good way of kind of sticking in your mind what numbers are important what things and then come the exam, at least you'll you'll maybe know some of it, have some kind of con- context to it. Yeah, so perhaps just being um, able to recognise abnormalities rather than actually mm. know what to do with it. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of the problem is that a lot of this stuff we don't get very much exposure to because it's not a problem until it is a problem. No, um, I mean, not, not unless you go to the foundation course, which I mean, everybody should do, but that's where I learned that stuff. I, I You know, I learned that stuff there. I didn't even know about these HDMs before this uh uh recording although maybe somebody's mentioned it to me in passing but knowing that i was sitting the part one i thought that's you know very much not in my wheelhouse and just kind of forgot about them yeah i think for part one studying there's a lot of stuff that was like put in the brackets of too difficult too complex or you know (laughs) i don't don't need to know and now in part two i'm like oh actually do need to know that Uh and on the subject of things that you know you don't know, um, it's important to recognise what your hospital does and doesn't have. So if your hospital doesn't do um, much surgery, for example, then uh, you need to, to recognise that you're not getting exposed to that as much. You need to maybe focus more on that interpretation of that. Mm-hmm. And you know, all you, you peds, neonates, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know, TB, if you don't have much TB or travel-related stuff in your, your hospital. Was there much sort of tropical or travel-related stuff? Because I can always feel like that's in like an ID bracket in my head most of the time, and unless it's coming into one of the things like infection control, public health. Hmm. There was maybe a smattering. Okay. You, you could, you could uh, anticipate the kind of questions that come up 
Like, I mean, I don't know anything about what's coming from the future exam, but you can imagine things like diphtheria coming up or anything where the it's been a bit of spotlight on it, and there are clear guidelines in the UK. Right. Upe strep. Uh, was there anything in the exam about that was kind of focusing on recent outbreaks? Not in mine, I don't think. Oh, really? No. no. It takes quite a long time to set the questions and come up with them by the time, you know. Yeah, and we were specifically told, weren't we, Callum, that uh, we weren't going to get any COVID questions in our in our part one because we were sitting in the, at, at the very beginning of the pandemic and so they said it wasn't appropriate to um to include them so i was just wondering if like you know there's been a diphtheria scare group a strep uh very recently at the time of recording of this um uh, of this podcast in the uk at least there's been uh, an uptick uh, in cases and i guess with, with regards to covid or a new outbreak there needs to be an established guideline that's not going to change so it's pretty difficult to set any question about covid um in a, in a moving hmm. field yeah, I guess it's like, how do you, you need something you can examine and have a clear right answer? Because if you ask a question yeah. that's in the sort of complex bracket where there isn't best practice, it's quite hard to examine stuff where it's a bit more like what, what maybe there's good practice, but there's not best practice. It's a good point, actually, which is what I think one of the questions later on might be about kind of what we'd want the exam setters to know. We can answer that now, yeah. But, but one of, I think there's a slight lack of clarity around, you know, what guidelines we maybe are going to be questioning because you know it doesn't we don't get told we should be following BSAC or you know, mm. ESC or IDSA for endocarditis for instance and there's a pretty big difference between some of those guidelines you know BSAC stuff now getting a bit old there are there are several different international guidelines for several different infection topics and that overlap and there is certainly no guidance that I have found about you know if there is a correct one that we should be using so if you get a question on how to treat, you know, uh, CPE, should you be using IDSA or ECMI guidance, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I, I assume that if you give a reasonable answer that's kind of in line with generic current practice or at least is featured with one of the big guidelines, then you're probably along the right line. But there's not, there's, there's a lack of clarity around that, I would say. And maybe that's just an issue with infection generally because there's a lot of variability in practice. And as long as you're not doing something absolutely wild, but it's obviously going to be ineffective, then you've probably argue a lot of things the right way. But you, you and I, we don't know like how they're assessing that and it, what the, the examination like mark sheet looks like. So that's a really good point. And whether the question needs to say like, as per the, you know, or taking your guidance from this guideline, or maybe it's in your answer, you write as per the so-and-so guideline. Yeah. Although sometimes I, I find it personally to have been like, I might know what my approach would be, but I can't say to you specifically without looking it up, that was yeah. from the European or the American guidance. Yeah, I think it was only one question, I think, where I wrote, literally wrote, as per the IDSA guidance for something, um, and sort of wrote the answer. Hmm. And I think I, I definitely wrote this to kind of justify why I was choosing to do something um, hmm. specifically. Um, but I think probably as long as you're doing something that's viewed as you know, kind of reasonable, you're probably doing the right thing. But uh, this is the, the end issue. We don't have... I'm, I'm, I'm quite, I may have scraped, limped, hobbled, fallen over the pass mark. And, you know, I didn't really know. And I'd be interested to kind of get, you know, I'd love to look back at my exam. Maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. Maybe it would be terrible. But um, in some ways, I'd quite like to look back at my exam and know what I got right and wrong. 
It's kind of crazy that you don't get feedback because I guess like why do we examine people like one part of it is like so people have confidence in the profession and and faith that people know what they're doing but another part is to learn and the huge part like of assessment is that we should give people feedback and you, you do this huge exam and you've come out and you're like I wrote this but I actually don't know which questions I got right or wrong and so you don't so you actually learn like I guess you learn from the studying but like one, one of the questions that we had was what are some top facts that have stuck in your mind? So for the part one exam, I learned, and this is absolutely useless and because it never came up in the exam. I learned all of the viral um, families and um, the classification system. Um, the, Baltimore. the Baltimore classification. Oh, yeah. I learned the whole thing, right? Not a single question on it. But some of them really stuck in my hand, uh, head, like Khaleesi viruses are a single strand positive sense RNA virus. Like, what? what why do I know that? What was your mnemonic for it? Oh, I don't think I can share that. But I, I came up with like a, a long story. <laughs> I think Khaleesi viruses was because uh, it was like a Game of Thrones reference or something. Um, I've written it down somewhere. Yes. Was there anything that like any facts useless or useful um, that have stuck in your mind that you now can't quite get out of there from the exam? Um, well, James, I did the opposite of what you're suggesting before. I did start by reading Mandel. Uh, I had like a big Excel file that one of my people I was studying with, very grateful to them, gave me a, an Excel file that someone had made, which is a list of all the bacteria, all the viruses, and then all the the, doc, the, the guidelines. I just like, well, I'll do a guideline and I'll do a bacteria or a few bacteria and go through it. Um, so I got to Erisiplothrix in Mandel, before I then lost interest <laughs> or, or before I then realized I've only got a month until my exam. And uh, I was reading that there's a condition called whale finger, which is that whalers could get um, erosipilothrix lesions from, from whaling. And uh, in the exam, there was a question all about erosipilothrix. And one of the questions was other than butchery, name five professions where you can get erosipilothrix from. So I got to write down whaling as an answer. <laughs> and for all you know, that was the one uh, that I did the yeah. pass. Yeah, that's pretty good. That is a very, I love that fact. And it's one of those things that you you, you read once and you're like, why have I, why have I remembered this? Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Ollie? Did you have any similarly strange things that you've <laughs> memorized? Personally strange, but... Um... Jamie and I, I think shared a similar mind-blowing moment when we read, both read the Shigella and E. coli SMI and realised that they're the same bacteria, um, which I think is covered, covered on Idiot's episode previously, but uh, I don't think I quite believed him when he told me that, and then I actually read the SMI. Uh, <laughs> Jamie was yeah. shocked. I it just know, makes me really question... I mean, I should have read the bloody SMIs in the first place, shouldn't I? But... I know. It just makes me wonder why taxonomists you know, decide to rename most other things, and yet... Shigella and Eco, I get to carry on pretending that they're different bugs. Everything else. But, um, the candidates aren't candidates anymore. The streptococci get moved around like it's a game of chess, but this is the thing that they keep separate. I, I imagine there's this like epic, you know, epic fantasy level battle going on in the world of taxonomy, taxonomy where there's like <laughs> these people defending it. No, we can't change the names. You know, it'll confuse people and, and, and they'll complain on that small podcast and then there's the other people like it's not correct and the genomics don't match up and you must change it because we have to be exactly correct no don't get rid of candidate but yeah it's, it's confusing isn't it 
Okay. There's also um, one stat that I think was in the UCAS document on intrinsic resistance about CPEs. And something like it, there was a recent stat about um, CPE rates in Klebsiella back to reuse in Greece, where like two thirds are CPEs now, I think, or something like that. Some outrageous number. And I, I, that kind of just stuck with me. I was a bit like, that's a, that's a whole different world of micropology when you're dealing with that kind of resistance. Um, it's terrifying. Like, what is in two thirds of. Klebsiella bacteremias uh, in blood cultures are carbapenemase, carbapenem resistant or carbapenemase producers. Wow, that's uh, that's terrifying. Yeah, and I guess we read those European guidelines and, and think, oh, we'll occasionally use that. But This is why they have rapid PCRs, like straight from blood, you know, kind of to, to identify resistance and stuff in those labs, yeah. whereas we wouldn't use them that much. But one of the questions mm. was, any specific advice for clinical scientists at an exam? Because, or, or, or I guess, like non, non medically trained um, people sitting the exam, maybe quite hard to answer. Not sitting that group, but maybe you've got, you had some experience, some colleagues or people you talked to. I don't know. I would, I, I think that the clinical scientists are in pretty strong position for the exam. Um, certainly, the ones that I've met that have done the exam, I mean, they really, they really know this stuff. I mean, because the, they're doing it day in and yeah. day out, the SMI stuff. However, I mean, it's always grass is always greener, um, but that's a big chunk of stuff that they just probably just know very comfortably. Uh, I can't I can't think from the exam there's very much stuff, in clinical interpretation um, that they they wouldn't otherwise hmm. be learning um, or have or get. So I feel like the part one is the opposite, isn't it? It's very it's very clinically focused, and sometimes you come to exam and you think you remember the things that are really difficult, but you don't remember the things that are easy because it just comes naturally to you doing this clinical. It's just a bit graft this exam. You just need the errors to sit down and memorize. This stuff. That's a great segue for another question, which is, <laughs> is it James going to take it? Uh, well, speaking of that, uh, how far in advance of the exam did you guys start revising? Uh, so I probably did three months of hard, consistent study and maybe another sort of six weeks slow intro deciding that I was going to have to start working before that. Uh, I must say I was very lucky where I worked that I was given significant protected revision time at work and and sort of bench time and stuff like that so uh, that really really helped mm. yeah and i guess if anyone's listening and thinking about doing the part two maybe they could talk to their department about trying to get some protected time for you know because study leave is not just meant to be for courses and stuff you are meant to be able to take it for um uh, for exam uh, revision as well but that takes a bit of planning how about yourself, Rob? How long did you? I think I left myself about three months. So one month of reading Mandel and then two months of panicking. One um, month and you got up to E. <laughs> which is like, that's probably how much how long you, you expect it to take. Yeah, it just is so big. <laughs> I think I got about a week of study leave, seven days of study leave for, for just revising. Mm-hmm. But my consultant colleagues and the other registrars were very supportive of me having extra time to have tutorials with consultants um, or to attend meetings. I think one thing I haven't mentioned that I think was absolutely key, and if you can do it, do it is find a study buddy. And so shout out to Av, who is my mate down south, who I revised online with and did for part one as well. Uh, because she, she definitely kept me going and we used to 
meet up several times a week sort of online remotely and have would have prepared like PowerPoint presentations on topics or like quiz each other and stuff. And that, that was super helpful, especially when you're trying to digest some of the green book or some of the SIs and stuff, having someone else go through it and talk you through it just makes it that much easier when you come around to read it yourself. So if you can find a friend doing it at the same time that you kind of get on with, then mm. that's really, really helpful. I suppose one thing we should mention, Calm, is that the green book does have some, uh, there are some questions that are based on the green book that you can, uh, email and, and ask to receive the questions and then the answers and you can test yourself on it. Yeah, I completely agree, Ollie, about the like study buddy thing. That's what I did for part one and they got me through it. And I think there's some theory underlying it. I was reading a thing on Twitter recently about like habit forming and and um, like socializing, learning and socializing habits and like that being a really powerful way of, of, of motivating but also like it's solidifying it in your mind because you're there's that responsibility to their person as well that like you kind of kind of have to show up don't you yeah definitely accountability i think so we would set each other topics that we would prep for the next session and i knew i was gonna be letting her down if i hadn't you know put in the effort to have gone through those topics as it were and to make a good presentation for her to learn from so that was kind of the way we worked anyway and then i also had alex and sajid locally as well we had a whatsapp group and we used to quiz each other you know ask each other a question each each day and that kind of stuff that works really well i feel like i need to do my share as well otherwise i'm gonna upset uh, <laughs> uh so i <laughs> i revised my <laughs> colleague steve um but uh what i would say is make sure that you're revising efficiently in these groups, um, we didn't spend too much time uh, together going through stuff. And I think perhaps more time together because you can pick out and test each other on, especially the HTMs, which is so difficult to memorize as, as I keep saying. Um, but I don't know, making PowerPoints, things like that, you gotta be efficient with what you're learning because there's so much to get through. Even even three months isn't doesn't feel like that long when you look at the huge list of stuff to learn. Uh, so just picking out key questions, memorize it, so you've got it mm. and when it comes to exam you're comfortable you know you've got a definite answer for things that you can memorize i think it's quite easy when you're revising for any topic to focus on the things that you like and you're interested in and 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 shy away from the things that are really difficult but that piece about explaining to someone else like i think there's, there's a different levels of of learning and the highest one is if you can teach and present on it so you don't really understand someone until you something until you have to ex explain it to someone else um, like I always find it of gram negative resistance that every time I go to tr like teach people about it, I sit down and I'm like, oh, actually, I, I not do I understand this? And then like by look by teaching it, I sort of get back to it. But um, I hope you do because you taught me. Yeah, not many things I get to teach you. So um, anything else you guys want to? Any other advice for people? Could I be a bit controversial? You had your question about what what would I want to say to people who set the exam? It is really expensive yeah I, I have the, i have this down as one of my clients nice. as well one and a half thousand pounds for an exam that's got a fairly high fail rate and also an exam that as far as i can see has been stripped back down to a shorter exam with less wet work not that with inflation with the consultant time to write questions it's not expensive but it's so much it's so expensive um fortunately I, I passed it on my first go but uh i could 
I could easily have failed it. It's just so much money. And I certainly was contemplating to kind of afford this. I've got other things I need to pay for. Mm. And then even when you pass the exam, I'm sorry, already to to uh, take the the buzz off when you when you guys, well, Mark Callum, when you pass it. But the first thing you get is an email saying you need to pay to become a FRC path to use a postnomial. That's for me, it was another £255 with only three months left of the year. And I've just ha- had another email saying £500 for the next year. Um, it's a huge amount of money. And I don't know, from from the college, uh, sorry, from the yeah, RC path, as a microbiologist, as a trainee, I'm not sure what I'm, if there's a huge amount for me to gain from being a member other than using the postnomial so far. I think it's just because I recently had an email. It's, it's uh, I felt like I needed to mention it. Yeah. Yeah. There is some stuff on their website because I was looking at this before and it does, does lay out what the, what the money is for and where they, they're very open about it. But I think there's a difference between saying here's money for a membership that you choose to do versus this is a mandatory exam that you must do to progress in your training. And it doesn't really line up with the cost of similarly structured exams. And so I think it's not unreasonable for us to just question that cost. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I mean, uh, I think Rob, yours was probably at the college, wasn't it? When you did your- <laughs> yeah, it was, it's a, it's a lovely building. Um, oh, I'm sure. Which I will probably not visit many times in my career. So we, ours was at some extremely posh, very expensive looking uh, corporate place on like the 40th floor and a building in Canary Wharf um, that must have been hugely expensive to rent out, I'm sure. And I do, you know, you do question why certain venues are chosen. If you've got a, if you had a mandate for people to go somewhere for an exam, there are cheaper places than London to pick it. Uh, and certainly cheaper parts of London, I have thought. I think there must have just been a number of candidates mm. so that they couldn't hold it at the college. There were a lot when I when I sat at it. Um, and then they have they list what the benefits and membership mm. are. Um, you know, as I had the recent £500 bill to, mm. for my post-numerals as well. Um, and I really couldn't quite work out what the benefits were apart from having FLC pass. But I, I, from my understanding, you can get... you can not pay and still keep your post numbers, you have to put in brackets the year that you passed. Uh, Is anybody checking your email signature? Maybe that's too controversial to say. If you put it on there, is someone coming and say? In my exam then, uh, uh, food is provided for lunch, but it didn't turn up. Um, I mean, these things happen. So we had we, we went out to get our own lunch and they delayed the second exam. And we're told that if we register with the college website or something, we can reclaim the money, which, I don't know. <laughs> if everybody's not in the UK, um, that's what we're, do- we're doing. I wonder, I wonder if it's similar in other in other parts of the world. Who knows? Probably not listening to this episode because it's not relevant to you, which is fine. Well, perhaps. Perhaps we should say at the start, Callum, uh, warning, this really only has relevant for UK trainees and international listeners. Uh, beware, this may be a colossal waste of your time. One thing I would say is... I think there were a fair number of people who do that exam who aren't necessarily UK based. Okay. Actually. So um, from certain parts of the world and or international medical graduates who are working over here now as well, who or who might plan to come over to the UK and do the, the FRC path exams. I know some of those as well. Um, so it may well still be a benefit if, if you're, yeah. you know, there, there is an international qualification like MRCP gets done all over the world as well. So I think FRC path has some 
use elsewhere. So, Parent. Oh, yeah. yeah, I guess, and also like, all the stuff you mentioned about the resources, I think it's just generally useful if you're training to be a microbiologist. So, um, if you are going to put a warning, you put a warning in for that awful pun that you did. Oh, can I? Oh, yeah, we've not even heard the, the main pun of the day. Oh, sorry. Uh, Ollie, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I actually, uh, I just got back from the golf course. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was, it was a bit odd. Like, it was really easy. Like, every single hole was just part two. <laughs> God. Callum, you're fired. Ollie, welcome to the Idiots team. Uh, yes. <laughs> you're the new pun master. Victory. Okay, I'll just drop the mic um, on my way out, and Jamie, you can learn how to edit. Oh, Callum, you're rehired. Ollie, sorry, man. Maybe next time. All right, is that all we got? Exactly. All right, uh, Rob, Ollie, thanks very much uh, for joining us on the show. Questions, comments, suggestions, why don't you put them in to idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Have a five-star review in your pocket. Me and Callum would love to receive it. Please put it in your podcast player of choice. We tweet at idiots underscore pod. And if you want to donate us coffee, you may now do so. There's a link in the description. But until next time, I'm Jane. That's Ollie. This is Robert. And I'm Callum. See you then. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learned and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know. Also, it's pronounced cathedrical. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so do you guys want to know? Uh, so for the uninitiated score pod, I put up our first ever Twitter poll as to how you pronounce Shionogi's favourite Trojan horse. And I'm pleased to announce the results here, which are profoundly upsetting. Uh, so we had a total of 257 votes, and they are uh, in order at 42% Sephidericol, at 37% Sephidericol, at 13% Kephidericol, and at what? a lowly 8% Kephidericol. Vindication. Ian Callum. No, uh, I didn't. Think... I, I said Kefidericol, and you said whatever you the bottom one was. Kefidericol, uh, the true, the the eight percent, the la, the least popular one. I say actually, I don't know what I say. I think I just change with like the wind with, with antibiotic pronunciation. I, I can I can deal with Kefidericol, Kefidericol. I don't mind that. It's it's cephalus borns. Yeah. Oh yeah. Kefidericol. Um, what, how do you say kef- it, Rob? Kefidericol. Kefidericol. Kefidericol, damn it. So that's three votes to Kefidericol and one vote for Kefidericol. <laughs> this will be in the exam. <laughs> well, if only. I, but I would fail that because I failed my own poll by coming last. <laughs> is that the Ameri- is that what American? What you now need to do, Jane, yeah. is make it so that people have to pay you $8 to be able to vote in your polls. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, Shinogi are Japanese, so really, um, it's how they um, uh, pronounce it that matters. But Shinogi, you if you're what, listening, please write I it. To, no, they won't be because I tried to tag them in, and uh, they've got three uh, Twitter handles: one for Shinogi US, one for Shinogi somewhere else, and one for Shinogi Japan. And each one of them says, "We don't answer any tweets," <laughs> and uh, two of them have never tweeted anything. So I don't think Shinogi are really big on the social media side of things. Um, So we'll never know how they pronounce it. But at least we're all agreed on the hard K.